0: Welcome to another episode of 2024, The Class of Activism. I am Joseph. I am joined by Nia Kazibotla, and today we are going to talk about toxic masculinity and the cultural aspect of misogyny known as rape culture. We're going to talk about what they are, the very real dangers of them, and like really how to actually stop them. So first, we need to say that this episode will be covering some topics which may be triggering to some listeners. We're going to be talking a lot about sexual violence, so if any listeners want to opt out, please feel free to do so. Now, before we really dive in and talk about all the really dark stuff, I feel like we need to address... Um, what happened on Wednesday, or, yeah, last Wednesday, with the Greek life meeting? So, kind of to summarize this as best as I can, I'm not a part of Greek life, but I know some people who are, and a lot of, and some people who have been like very vocal about this. Um, there was, so there was this all there was this meeting where everyone in Greek life was required to attend. This is at Stetson. And they brought in this speaker that was, the topic was supposed to be breaking stereotypes in Greek life. And so this doesn't really lend to that many, like, like just the topic name doesn't really lend to any like very triggering things. But the speaker then, like, like, I think in, like, the middle of the presentation started talking about sexual violence and such and, like, did not, um, did not give any sufficient trigger warnings. Like, the speaker, like, showed, I guess, like, very triggering images in the presentation as well. So the chat, the Zoom chat of this was very chaotic like it started off with people talking about like how it was bad that there was not a trigger warning to this that that it needed to have happened no one was expecting this this just came out of the blue no one like if you look at the name of the topic you're not going to think that you're going to cover anything pertaining to racism sexual violence or anything no you're just it's just breaking stereotypes in Greek life. That could mean it, it, does, it does not lend itself to that. So that was, at first, what the Zoom chat was about. And then it got really, really bad when someone from, I think it was, like, Delta Sigma, yes, I'm calling you out. Someone from Delta Sigma put in the chat, um... And this, is, this right here, it's going to be very, very triggering, just warning you. It's, it was, I think, a recipe for a raccoon, which, which has so many racial implications to it. And so then it got really crazy with a lot, with a good number of people making racist jokes making sexist jokes make just being really really offensive and so yeah that meeting happened Stetson sent out an email the next day basically saying yeah we're aware of this this was bad um and so then Aaliyah, who was on the last episode she made a post about like greek life and then like a bunch of people commented on this post um some were basically saying not all greek life and but there's just this just really brings to mind a lot of the culture within greek life just being a place where racism and sexism and bigotry really festers where it really can grow without anyone noticing
1: yeah i mean uh well first of all thank you for having me again um but i i'm shocked to hear about this incident and not shocked at the same time um it so so just a larger issue whenever whenever these zoom meetings happen it seems like something goes wrong each time right exactly Um, like
0: every every time there's like a zoom meeting that's yeah it's like bigger than 20 people a racial slur occurs why is that why can't we have one darn zoom meeting without it
1: yeah why why is that it seems so we've had several hijackings like over the course of like this school year um for, and for whatever reason, they've been unable to get that under control. Uh, maybe they got it under control recently. But I I don't understand uh, why this seems to be a common occurrence every time there's a Zoom meeting. And, uh, well, I as as with the other ones, I don't think that there are going to be any repercussions for this one. I think uh, they are going to, I, I don't think anyone who made those comments is, is going to face any repercussions, basically. Um, as, as far as, I I have a lot of questions about the the impetus for calling the meeting in the first place. Why now? Why all of a sudden? Was there another incident that we don't know about that prompted the meeting? Uh, why over Zoom when they knew that this was, that uh, just inappropriate behavior over Zoom has been happening over the course of the- Why did you even have a
0: Zoom chat?
1: Yeah, why did you have a Zoom? Why not just have people listen to the speakers? Um, or, what? Why not? Maybe open up the floor for questions if people had specific questions. Um, I this whole thing just seemed like a recipe for disaster from the beginning, and it's it, it behooves me. It behooves me as to why, um, why no one saw this coming. Um, yeah, I. I mean, I based on what I've heard from other people in Greek life, uh, it, it seems like they had no idea that this meeting was going to be called. So they were not given a heads up this meeting was going to be called. They were not told what topics were going to be discussed. Um, but also, they don't know of any incident that might have prompted this meeting. So to them, this is very, very sudden. And then it, it seemed to just add more fuel to the fire. Uh, in terms of how Greek life is perceived of amongst people who aren't Involved in Greek life, and uh, of course, now it, it's created an even more unsafe environment for minority students who are in Greek life.
0: Right, exactly, and the entire system of Greek life has, if you look at it from a historical point of view, historically it had been very, it has been very exclusive towards. Persons of color. It's been very exclusive towards anyone who differs from being like a stereotypical uh, Greek life type person that anyone could like automatically think of. It's Greek life as an institution has a lot of work to do in so many ways. And Stetson, in particular, also, they have a lot of work to do in this respect. Like, in particular, they need to have more there needs to be more oversight with a lot of greek organizations when incidents like the or to not just prevent incidents like these from happening but also to hold people accountable when they do happen and what do we mean by holding people accountable what we mean is when there's and accuse like when something like this happens like within a zoom chat when someone makes an overtly bigoted statement or action and and is pretty much like universally agreed on this is just like the most extreme case like if it's universally agreed on that this was bad um they should get kicked like individuals should get kicked out of that greek organization and then going from there have further oversight of that Greek organization in particular because Greek organizations get to choose who is in it. They have so much control over recruitment, over pretty much who they attract with the brand that they present. And so you have then, like, some more... You have some, like, Greek organizations that that um, attract, like a sub demographic of people and then you have another one that attracts a certain other demographic of people and then so and if you have like really overtly racist sexist bigoted members in your greek like or greek life organization you need to like seriously reevaluate what you're actually promoting what you're actually doing like and i think in this case if i am like if I am correct on this, that it was a Delta Sigma. Feel free to like correct me if it was not a Delta Sigma person that did this. Um, if it was someone in Delta Sigma that started this, Delta Sigma needs to be very closely scrutinized by the higher-ups of administration. They need to be strongly looked at because if people are saying this in public, they're saying this in private.
1: Absolutely. I mean... As you said, the Greek organizations themselves have a large amount of discretion over who they give bids to and over who joins the organization, but I'd I'd even go further than that I mean it's really in the hands of a few individuals it's really uh, you have you have a few students who are in positions of power within Greek organizations, and they essentially have total control over who joins the organization. And of course, they're going to pick people who agree with them ideologically, um, or or people who they they feel will best represent their Greek organization, um, best represent, put that in air quotes, because uh, we might have different definitions of what uh, good representation means. But uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that Stetson should take action against These individuals, Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's going to be viewed as a massive amount of just oversight and overstepping on Stetson's part. I think a lot of students affiliated with Greek organizations will be very angry if that happens. Um, Not not because they disagree with uh, the individual students getting uh, or facing consequences, facing the consequences of their actions. But I think they'll be worried about the larger implications of and stepping in. So I think it's highly unlikely that they will. Um, and also, as you said, this happens in in private. And um, I I mean, I'm, I'm sure there, there are horror stories from minority students and just students who perhaps disagree with the larger culture of the Greek organization that they're part of, who uh, can attest to a lot of horrible things that happen that we're just completely unaware of.
0: Right, exactly. And, of course, that's because of the way that institutions, um, not just like higher education, but just institutions in general, they're not designed to hold people accountable, by and large. They're not designed to have accountability structures in place because accountability harms the status quo in a lot of ways. So in my like I was I was in the BS the Black Student Association meeting last night and we talked a lot about what happened and at this at the meeting there was a lot of discussion about or there was a good amount of discussion it wasn't just in the meeting it was also in um, Aaliyah's post it was also I think in uh, Jasmine Tinsley's video. Um, there's a lot of discussion a lot about what's called the Divine Nine, which is a collection of, first of all, it's part, it's, the official name is the National Pan-Hellenic Council, which is a, it's a collection of historically black fraternities, and I think it's fraternities, either fraternities or sororities, or both, anywho, um, the, the divine nine, it, it includes um, kappa alpha psi, omega psi phi, alpha kappa alpha, delta sigma theta, uh, zeta phi beta, alpha phi alpha, phi beta sigma, sigma gamma rho, and iota phi theta. So Stetson, please get all of them here. There's one currently that um according to some people i've talked to is like just like struggling in a lot of ways to like just existing within the greek life space but if you want to really create an inclusive environment if you really want to create an equitable environment get all the divine nine here period
1: absolutely um we definitely need at least a few more uh for, I think they are fraternities because they're they co-ed and the, the term for co-ed fraternities is usually just fraternities. Um, we definitely need more fraternities from the Divine Nine on campus and we need them to get more respect. Um, for one thing, I, I believe it's Sigma Gamma Rho that's currently on Stetson's campus and they don't have a house like the other sororities and fraternities do. They have a public meeting space that they use for their meetings and this, this always gets... Uh, Reserved or, or taken up or, or just kind of vandalized and trampled on by by uh, like other students. Uh, whereas obviously uh, students are just not allowed; they're not permitted to just enter a sorority or fraternity house. If they they don't if they're not affiliated with them. Um, but Sigma Gamma Rose public meeting space does not get this much respect. Um, so that's obviously a major issue, and they students have uh. Students who are part of Sigma Gamera are not aware of why they're struggling so much to get a house on campus um, when other sororities and fraternities have one. So, yeah, that's a major issue. And yes, I do think that the presence of more Divine Nine fraternities will uh, make the just Greek life environment a lot, a lot more inclusive. But yeah, I think it it goes, it goes beyond that too. I don't know how, I mean, I guess I would, I would ask you, I, I don't know how you change a culture that's so entrenched and just uh, kind of, kind of that, that uh, internet edge forward culture of, of saying whatever you want, not facing any repercussions um, and everything kind of being passed off as is, is a joke. And uh, students who do get upset are are accused of being overly sensitive. I mean, that's like a deeply entrenched thing that I don't see getting better anytime soon, but um, hopefully I'm alone in that. Do you see it getting better anytime soon?
0: It, It probably won't get better anytime soon, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for it to get better. And a lot of how to actually get better at it is by changing who you exactly attract to your Greek org. Um, if you really want to break stereotypes, you need to change who you bring in. Like, I, there are a lot of Greek life people that were, like, not all Greek life or whatever, and they were like, oh, there's a lot of stereotypes that unless you're in Greek life, you don't, you don't completely know the situation. I'm like, well, from what we can tell from this overt racism that's, like, present here? No. Just, get out get out with that argument i I, and just you really need to change who's in the organizations because people control organizations everything has to do with people and who has power who doesn't
1: yeah absolutely and and i don't want my i don't want uh kind of our general pessimism to kind of permeate and put uh minority students and and other just, again, people who ideolog- ideologically don't agree with the majority of students involved in Greek life, we, I don't want to turn them off from joining Greek life. Um, I think I think all that'll do is, is just further kind of segregate Greek life, um, which, which it already is. Um, but I, I don't know. I think um, there's a larger discussion to be had about how, like, the role that Greek life plays on college campuses and the uh, what students who decide to join it are really signing up for when they decide to join it um because I cannot imagine uh the environment that a lot of students who join it are immediately put in and I think it's largely brushed under the rug or downplayed so that students can join it because these organizations are incredibly expensive and they're getting a lot of money out of students joining them they're getting a lot of money out of uh constantly attracting thousands of new students every year well millions of new students every year um and i when when you look at it from that aspect i i think they 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 don't really have much of a motive to make uh to make sweeping changes because that involves addressing the concerns that have been voiced against them and that involves uh, making public statements about the issues that take place in their organizations, and I don't see that happening, um, although I want it to. And um, it might not happen at a national level, or I'm sure that it won't happen at a national level, but it can happen at a university level. And I think Stetson, because it says a lot of, I don't want to call them platitudes, but they're often platitudes about diversity and inclusion and and its commitment to making students feel safe on campus. I think if Stetson wants to uphold its previous state or its state statements, then I think what Stetson needs to do is really begin inquiring into the situation that's present in a lot of Greek organizations.
0: Exactly. All right. So let's now, let's now uh, get into our actual, our uh, actual topic um, of Rape culture and toxic masculinity and everything pertaining to that. So, rape culture—one particular definition for it—it's um, it, a culture that doesn't just treat sexual violence as a norm, but in so many ways, it actually praises it. Like, there, in a lot of cases, a lot of cisgender, mostly white men can get away with many 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 cases of sexual misconduct and violence like such as catcalling inappropriate flirtation and touching I- I- exploiting someone for sexual favors in exchange for like a promotion um, etc while women are massively scrutinized for being the v- like victims of these behaviors
1: yeah i mean uh Going off that definition, rape culture is still very much prevalent in the United States, despite the strides that feminists have made um, and and society at large has made, and it's still very, very prevalent on university campuses, of course. Um, It ties very closely into our previous discussion about the culture within Greek organizations and it's just prevalent on university campuses in general. Uh, I'm sure we're familiar with kind of the the large degree of scrutiny that's placed on on students whenever they try to speak up about uh, experiences of sexual assault and go to the Title IX committee. And uh, we see organiz- we see events like Take Back the Night, which sets and holds as a way to give a platform to students who have experienced sexual assault. We see we see a massive amount of pushback against those. Events, we see hecklers and people trolling, uh, like attending those events. And of of course, like, you know, making the victims feel even worse, or the survivors of these incidents feel even worse uh, because they're openly kind of discrediting their stories. Um, Yeah, I think we're still very much in a rape culture in a lot of ways. I mean, again, I do think that we've made strides, and I think those are very important to acknowledge, but. I wouldn't say that we're out of a rape culture yet. No.
0: Right. Exactly. And we're going to be talking next week more about, um, how lots of women are treated in the legal system, like everything like pertaining to title nine, um, title seven. Um, we're probably going to talk about, um, another resident, uh, punching bag of the podcast, um, Brett Kavanaugh, um, Clarence Thomas, it, all, all of the, yeah, we're going, we're going to be talking a lot about that, but really, yes, you are right that we have made a lot of strides, like, within, like, the past, like, four or five years regarding, like, trying to actually, like, get out of rape culture with, like, the Me Too movement, with all of these, like, high-profile people in positions of power, suddenly being held accountable and so we are finally like more scrutinizing like behaviors that we in decades past considered appropriate or at least not even like just like not necessarily appropriate but we just like covered up in so many aspects
1: yeah and I'm, i'm really happy about that um i think I mean, even the fact that we had the Kavanaugh trial, um, of course, he was eventually acquitted. Um, he is on the Supreme Court now. Um, but even the fact that we had the Kavanaugh trial is is a good thing in a lot of ways, because I don't think it would have happened even a decade ago. I don't think the culture was in a place where we would have had that trial, um, where uh, Miss Bla- Mrs. Blasey Ford's accusations would have been. Taken as seriously, so I think we've made a lot of strides in that regard. But still, I mean, if if Brett Kavanaugh actually did what he was accused of doing, and there's a very high amount, the degree of proof that he did do what he's accused of doing, um, he shouldn't be serving on the Supreme Court. And um, you know, thus, because he's on the Supreme Court, uh, legislating a lot of issues pertaining to women um, when he has a past of abusing women, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I it, it's hard to say. It's hard to say how far we've come. Um, I I do think that the trial happening itself is a good thing, but and, and and you brought up Clarence Thomas. I mean, he's his name is just not even in public discourse anymore. It's like people have completely forgotten what he did.
0: Right, exactly. And the the um, Anita Hill hearings, um, like. The the Clarence Thomas case was, like, a case where, like, Anita Hill was insanely, insanely credible. Like, there were details that, like... Like, if you just look at it from, like, a truth perspective, like, just looking at everything for, like, truth value... What she was uh, accusing uh, Clarence Thomas of, like, no one could make any of that stuff up.
1: No one! Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's... There's so much proof, um, but look at how culture the, the the different the culture was back then. Uh, where he, I mean, she got she got so much pushback from p- even even progressives who were like, "Uh, you're, you know, you're derailing the the progress that has been made been made as a result of you know Clarence Thomas being in the position that he was in." Um, and you know she she got a lot of pushback from feminists. Um people saying that she and then you, and then you had people saying that um she was, you know, exploiting uh, her kind of, I guess, Clarence Thomas's, frankly, uh, horrible obsession with her um, in order to kind of climb the corporate ladder herself. Um, so it's the culture was very different back then. Um, so looking at these two situations, I do think that we've made a lot of progress. But there hasn't been any justice or adequate justice for Anita Hill for one thing. Um, So uh, have we really come that far?
0: Right. Um, One of, one of the, one of the main aspects of rape culture is that in so many cases, women have the sole responsibility of keeping themselves safe from sexual violence. Like, there are just, like, there's no real responsibility on men's part, like, no, society does not teach men to not rape. I know that sounds, like, simplistic and, like, kind of wrong on its face, like, of course we should, like, of course people are taught to, like, that rape is bad, but at the same time, men are not taught, how like, how to not rape someone that they're just in this like they're just brought up to have this belief that they are that men are the ones with power and then women don't that's really the sole belief of toxic masculinity
1: yeah and i don't i don't know how to go about fixing that societally so so for example um uh my family's from India, and we see that in India, um, I mean, forget, forget, you know, teaching men not to rape. It's it's often the case that um, rape is viewed as an inevitability of sorts, and as a woman, your place in society is to kind of be as like pre- preemptive as possible, and, and as like take as many precautions as possible in terms of avoiding it. But it's treated as an inevitability. It's treated as something that you very well might experience in your life. Um, and it's just up to you to kind of make sure that you you go about avoiding it, um, which is horrible. And I, I, we, we're not there uh, in the United States. I think the United States' culture has, it might've been that way, or it was that way um, a couple of centuries ago, <laughs> maybe even only like one century ago, um, but we are definitely in a different place now. However, I think we've come to like a different point with, with rape culture. In the United States where rape is seen as this horrible thing that horrible people do which it is but then we we kind of uh we, we like like to draw caricatures in our heads of like the, the monstrous sorts of people that could rape people when in actuality it could a simple misunderstanding simple uh, violation of consent can can lead to major problems and we don't bring that up and so what happens is you have a lot of people who just consider themselves not rapists like i'm not a rapist and i this isn't something i have to worry about and i know that my intentions are good so i don't have to you know worry about the maybe how uncomfortable i'm making someone else feel and i think that's what the the state of rape culture in the united states has devolved into where a lot of people uh, simply just don't see themselves as rapists and so they're not willing to question their actions um, and that's why I mean in college campuses it's op- that's often the case now th- now there are lots of people who also still intentionally seek to rape women um, or sexually assault women um, you mentioned that you didn't think that men were taught not to rape enough. Um, given given your upbringing do you, what was kind of was there any discussion about how you should approach these subjects um but how you should treat the women that you were later going to like romantically encounter um was it kind of something that was brought up in your family or your or your school through i don't know health class or something or was this just completely not mentioned
0: so for my upbringing um I grew up in, like, uh, in pretty much a Catholic household, and, um, my family believes strongly, like, um, like, not having, like, premarital sex or whatever, and even then, though, like, they have, like, this, they have this kind of, like, they taught me, like, this was, like, more, like, in high school when they, when they taught me this, that, or, or told me this, that it, is very like central to like get consent it's huge it's like first it's like the bare minimum in so many cases
1: well that's very good i'm I'm glad to hear that consent was emphasized a lot uh growing up for you because i can say with certainty that um it's probably not the case in most households i don't think there's like a lot of discussion around consent um i don't think a lot of I think, and I understand from like a parent's perspective, how um, you don't want to view your son as someone who could potentially, or your daughter, I mean, men, men do get sexually assaulted by women. And men, of course, get sexually assaulted by other men at very high rates as well. Um, But I I understand why you don't want to talk to, you don't want to view your children as potential sexual offenders in any way. Um, So you don't have these conversations with them. And you think, and, and that's like, And we're talking about families that would even uh, entertain the possibility of these discussions when in a lot of families like mine, for example, this is this is not even something that's remotely talked about. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you were given talks about consent Um, and it's not even I I think the other the other like major, major factor here is that people uh, often just don't view sexual assault as as traumatic and as life changing of a thing as it actually is. Um, we often, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with like the Brock Turner case, for example. Um, we we viewed, a lot of people viewed Brock Turner's life as being just irrevocably damaged by the accusations against him, which turned out to be, which very much turned out to be true. And uh, mean, meanwhile, his I believe she's anonymous, which is, which is good. I'm glad she's anonymous. Um, and the person that he sexually assaulted, the person that he raped, I, people uh, looked at her as someone who ruined his life rather than the other way around. People viewed him as deserving of a second chance, as like a college kid who had a bright future. And this thing that he did was not that big of a deal. Like, I don't, why do we, why is that part of our culture that we uh, don't view the assault as nearly as traumatic as the consequences that someone faces for committing an assault. And why is it, the, and I know that we've heard about this, like, I, we we probably know lots of people who think this way, but they, they really seem to be convinced that uh, women falsely accusing men of rape is this major problem, and that there are, like, just millions of men in jail who have never actually committed sexual assault. Like, this is, like, a huge misconception that gets propagated by the right and like the likes of like ben shapiro and uh jordan peterson who were like this is a major uh, problem
0: our weekly <laughs> our <laughs> weekly uh call or call out of ben shapiro
1: <laughs> yes we got it sorry, in! <laughs> sorry this is like that this is one of and this is the second time of many times that his name is going to come out.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah we're we hypothetically like to talk about ben shapiro <laughs> mm-hmm
1: I and, mean, like, why is that? Why is there this huge misconception that falsely accusing men of rape is this just major problem that, like, our legal system is so flawed that there are, you know, simultaneously lots of men who are in jail who had never committed sexual assaults um, because they were falsely accused and women were believed when, when in reality, we know that, the, that there are lots of men who are not in jail when they should be. And that there are lots of women. I mean, there are lots of uh, abusers in jail who or who are not in jail when they should be
0: right exactly I mean you're still going to have like isolated cases of people being falsely accused of sexual violence you're still going to have those cases there are still bad actors out there absolutely but they're very isolated cases they're not the norm the norm what the norm is is people accusing someone of sexual violence and then getting completely discredited that's that's really in a lot of cases the norm
1: yeah and i it's it's just so fascinating seeing how and this is you're going to talk about this more next week um in next week's podcast but how the legal system treats uh survivors of sexual assault i even even in the united states it's a current legal system which has made a lot of progress uh I definitely think the scrutiny falls more on the survivor or the, the in this it would it would be the why am I blanking the prosecution side rather than defense. So you're you're the person who's accusing uh, someone else of sexual assault. The scrutiny always falls on them rather than the defendant uh, when it comes to sexual assault. Which is in the United States, given how like punitive our culture is, we always we always like to immediately suspect a defendant and a lot of intersections come into this where you know if you're a minority it's like oh you you probably did the crime regardless of what the evidence says like before we look at the evidence but when it comes to sexual assault it seems to be the one thing where we just put we just place such a high degree of scrutiny and um suspicion on the survivor rather than the defendant and i i don't know why that is
0: yeah i mean like with with sexual violence in particular like, it's, it's like that, except if you look at it within, like, a very, hist- in a kind of historical context, it's like the, scru- the scrutiny is on the prosecution heavily, it's like that for the ma- vast majority of cases, but then you have this one section where if you factor in race, if you factor in, if it's, if you have, like, cases or accusations of a most often a black man raping a white woman the script is entirely flipped in so many occasions like you have this is really in a lot of ways where we get a lot of lynchings that have happened in history this like because you have this kind of culture this kind of belief amongst white people that the innocence of white women must be protected from black men. Black men were completely uh, completely falsely um, portrayed as subhuman in so many respects.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's so disappointing that that's like it's a hallmark of slavery or or before like prior to slavery, honestly, um, anti-blackness and racism. And the stereotypes that were associated with black men were were prevalent in, in in lots of societies across time. but it's just so disappointing that now in, in 21st century America, like this is still a stereotype that exists that we still call, like as a society feel the need to protect the just the, this weird like, collective innocence of white women against black men and black men are just automatically seen as predators and um, for no reason it's completely unfounded it's horrible um the fact that so many people grew up thinking that and never think to challenge it is horrible um i it, it's we, we see cases of i mean there is recently a story kind of like a more like pop story that like i, I saw circulating around tiktok where there were there were a group of uh white uh, college students who were who were talking about how they uh, automatically viewed the intentions of black men with suspicion and how uh, they just perceived things that were uh, they, just, they just automatically put a lot of negative biases on black men uh, wh- when kind of dealing with them and it's so disappointing because they're probably gen z college students like us who should absolutely know better and it's just so disappointing that they haven't challenged these preconceived notions that their parents probably passed down to them
0: right exactly so let's talk a bit about what i call the strong man archetype and this falls under toxic masculinity which is pretty much the manifestation of rape culture in the personalities and actions of cisgendered men most of the time. So with this strongman archetype, it's the archetype that society places on a pedestal, even though this archetype is very harmful to people. And so, like, what do I mean by the strongman archetype? Pretty much just any, like, pretty much just take the stereotypical um what what a lot of people call manly man and this this stereo this type of person is placed on a pedestal and it is looked at as something to be praised
1: yes i mean it definitely still exists um this is one of those things that i'm not optimistic that we're going to get rid of this archetype anytime soon um still very very praised by general society and any challenges to this are met with like so much pushback i mean we see uh so (laughs) we recently we've seen uh people being in an uproar about harry styles uh experimenting with women's clothing as just a way to kind of show that men don't need to fit a certain, men don't need to fit a certain stereotype. And we see Candace Owens uh, releasing several statements about this. And for some reason, the issue should be, should have been beaten to death um, by now, but we still see Candace gaining just major online support and a major online audience whenever she talks about this. Um, You know, again, despite this being a relatively small, uh, incident compared to a lot of other things that need to be talked about. Um, but we see, we see just kind of the moral panic that arises and how public figures are able to play off of this moral panic whenever the archetype is challenged.
0: Right. Exactly. I want to read what exactly, um, Candace Owens said about Harry Styles, because this just perfectly, perfectly articulates what exactly like society thinks of this strongman archetype so and i quote there is no society that can survive without strong men the east knows this in the west the steady feminization of our men at the same time that marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence it is an outright attack and then the kicker bring back manly men
1: I statements like these are just so hard to take seriously because I'm like there are people out there who are actually reading that and they're taking it very seriously and literally um they think that all of this is actually happening um whereas I I don't know I I I'd like to think that Candace is smarter than this and that she is she knows what she's doing but anyway yeah it's I mean, if we were to dissect that statement, there are so many things that are wrong about that statement. Like, First of all, every society has a different definition of masculinity. Um, I will say that every society praises kind of certain toxic ideas of masculinity. That's, that's common across the board. But as a lot of people have pointed out, um, men in a lot of Eastern societies wear things that are very much akin to dresses that would be seen as feminine in Western society, but they're not. And of course, men in Western society have historically worn things that resemble dresses. Um, and they were even called something similar and they were called like frocks and whatnot. Um, but it, that's gone away over time. Um, if anything, that should demonstrate that definitions of masculinity and femininity are constant are dynamic and they're constantly changing. Um, And yeah, I mean, so we're, we're familiar with like the red pill movement, the black pill movement, incels, just all this crazy stuff that's gaining a lot of traction online. And Candace's statement plays right into the hands of that. I mean, she plays right into the moral panic that, uh, uh, Western society is becoming like slowly becoming more androgynous. I think that's what they're worried about. Um, that the gender roles that keep society stable are being eroded over time and that because of that we're just going the like people like to make comparisons to the fall of rome and kind of the the quote unquote sexual degeneracy that happened before rome fell and they're like that's what's happening now um yeah, Ken's statement is so interesting because it's like very on the nose. It's like these are all the things that these people are legitimately worried about. They're worried about Western society devolving into sexual degeneracy, and she's basically like, "Yeah, it is. Like, here's the proof: Harry Styles wearing a dress and taking one photo in a dress is proof that we're that we're falling like Rome is, whatever that means."
0: Right. <laughs> uh and really th- this strong men archetype this is also this is also where you get harmful effects of this patriarchal system harmful effects on men where by putting this manly men strong men archetype on a pedestal men are brought up to believe that they should be like that that every that uh, they should be like not showing their, like, emotions in a lot of contexts. Like, you know, the old adage, like, men should not cry and such. And this actually has a very harmful effect on people. It has a very harmful effect on men in that they're not taught how to deal with emotions in an effective way by being taught to be this archetype. They're not taught how to, like, communicate what they're feeling. They're not taught that they sh- that if they feel like they should, like, cry or something, like, if they're sad and you want to cry, you can cry. It's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, it's extremely harmful to men. Um, I think, I mean, in some ways it results in men, like, being pushed towards acting, maybe more violently or uh, uh, taking their anger out on women um, or taking their anger out on other men and and constantly feeling resentful towards other men. And then you have some people just bottling up their emotions entirely. Um, You see certain forms of emotion being more acceptable for men to express. Like anger is always anger and like violence, but that's in a more like, i don't know uh war what the is always scale. acceptable to me <laughs> yes yeah, war like something like war and just starting global conflicts and then smaller things like yelling punching things just Nothing smaller like acts of violence good
0: old manly men bar fight
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's really it's really harmful and i think i mean i don't like i think that uh the, the red pill movement is like a perfect example of this um there, there are a lot of men or young men and young boys who grow up feeling very kind of disillusioned um because they're they're told all these ideas of what masculinity is supposed to look like and they don't feel like they fit those ideals and they instead turn to they turn to these movements that like provide them with both the sense of community and the sense of purpose and just this kind of restoration of masculinity. And in doing so, they think that they have to subscribe to a whole bunch of other horrible worldviews too. Um, and just to be clear, like the first three things I mentioned are, are good. I think men should have solidarity. And I think men should have a positive and uplifting community amongst themselves. Um, but it, it's very sad that they feel like they have to turn to very toxic communities like that to find a sense of masculinity. Like I that was one of the questions I was gonna ask you. Did do you feel like you do you feel like you had a positive uh, image of masculinity growing up? And do, do you feel like you uh I don't know, do you feel like you felt secure and in, in kind of either like trying to uh, assimilate to this the archetype that was given to you. Um, and did you, did you find a balance between doing that and still maintaining respect for women and people in general?
0: My dad was so very, very good in the fact that he always let me express myself in pretty much any appropriate way that I wanted to. He was he is so good in that regard and I think that really helped my emotional development in a lot of ways. Like if I were to cry, he wouldn't tell me to not cry. He would like work through stuff with me. And like he's he's actually a former psychologist, so he knows about like the toxic effects that like this type of masculine like this type of masculinity that we're talking about um has on people and so he knows this and be and the way that he's raised me the way that he's raised uh my brothers it actually helped in so many ways and so i i i kind of have this like weird like relationship with like like traditionally uh, masculine things in that i do like some things that are like considered you know manly you know like cars deep voices you know that the fun stuff sports i like football and basketball those are fun
1: <laughs> no and I'm, I'm really glad to hear that like it sounds like your parents just did like a great job in so many ways um I think that's, that's good. Like they, they emphasized the positive aspects of masculinity. Um, and I mean, these are like our associations who knows if sports are actually supposed to be inherently masculine and cars are supposed to be inherently masculine. Right. That, That
0: is true. But I mean, because like they're viewed as that, I mean, I'm like, okay.
1: Yeah. And that's a very good thing. Like these are, and like, I'm pretty, I, I like, I like to emphasize this. Like, I don't think it's bad for for boys to grow up being like attracted towards traditionally masculine uh activities and I don't know just just like a general lifestyle And I don't think it's bad for for girls to grow up like being attracted to a, a traditionally feminine lifestyle because I think it's really hard to kind of circumvent that when there's so much societal pressure to assimilate to those things but it's as long it, as it's but,
0: like the personal choice of people, I'm fine.
1: Yeah, yeah. As long like, as whatever it's the, the heck you place.
0: want, small L liber- libertarianism right
1: here. <laughs> yes, it's as long as it's what you want, and as long as you you feel like you you're not being coerced into doing this, and as long as people aren't passing like value judgments on what's more, what's more valuable, kind of like what's an inherently superior thing to be interested in, or an inherently superior career path to follow, and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's okay if men want to do something that's more traditionally feminine, it's okay if women want to do something more traditionally masculine, and it's okay if, uh, and, and I mean, I think like part of the discussion, a lot of women's activities and career paths, as we talked about last time, are just inherently kind of viewed as more frivolous or inferior or less valuable to society, and that should not be enforced either.
0: Let's now talk about really the real, like we've been talking about this all throughout, but the real life consequences of toxic masculinity and rape culture. So, just to break down a couple of alarming statistics one in six women have experienced sexual violence. That, and also one in six men have experienced sexual violence, and odds are everyone knows someone who has experienced sexual misconduct or violence like these statistics they should be much more alarming like if one in three like if it was like if one in three women were murdered or whatever this would be a much more scary statistic because you know one third of like a certain demographic group being affected or by like experiencing sexual violence is just that's not good that's really just indicative of this rape culture that it actually has very harmful effects on people.
1: Yes. Yes. Very. And I'm, I'm always shocked to hear these statistics and I think we've grown up with so much pushback against statistics like these, that it's my, even like my visceral reaction is to be like, Oh, that can't be true. Like that's these numbers sound far too high to be true. Um, but i'm I'm not gonna doubt statistics that come from that are constantly being reinforced and that come from a legitimate source. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just shocking that so many women and so many men, one in six is still a huge, huge number. um it that go through sexual violence of some sort, and yet this problem is just completely swept under the rug by society that's shocking and that's horrible. Um, and it shows that our legal system has a, lot, a long way to come and that our just kind of cultural discourse surrounding sexual assault has a long way to go. Uh, and, and I don't know, uh, just the way we view sexual, we need to view it as something that can happen to people. It's not this kind of ridiculous, like, uh, because going back to what I said earlier about kind of the differences that I've witnessed between how kind of, how normative sexual assault is in India versus here, it's it's viewed as like an acceptable thing in India. And the only good thing about that, because that's like 99% horrible to think that way. The only good thing about that is that it is viewed as something that could happen to most people And so you should, uh, we should just talk about it more. Um, But in the West, I think it's seen as this thing that like, oh, it doesn't really happen to people. It's this, you know, you really have to just like be in a very unfortunate circumstance. You have to find yourself in very unfortunate circumstances for it to happen to you. And clearly, statistically, that's not the case.
0: Right, I mean, to some extent, there is like sort of this instinct to say like when you hear the one in three women statistic that you you're just like that can't be true but for me personally i have a lot of female friends that have been survivors of sexual violence and the sheer amount of friends that i have and have experienced this it's it's just so heartbreaking
1: yeah and i mean I, I have as well um and and again i i think sexual assault is one of those things where anecdotal experiences matter a lot i think they really need to be taken into account i i don't think that uh well in general i think anecdotal experiences do matter they have like a place in larger discourse, but when it comes to sexual assault in particular, I, they they very much matter. Um, and I have a lot of I'm familiar with a lot of people who have undergone, like frankly that that have undergone sexual assault that and they didn't realize what it was until much later, and by then it was it was way too late to take any. I, I mean. Uh, It's never too late in theory, but in practice and a lot of a lot of times it's it's too late for the legal system to take it seriously. Um, uh, And that's the the larger legal system, but also even again, like Stetson's Title IX committee and and how they handle cases um, or and and how people in your life are going to kind of handle it. Um, You're you, you are expected to get over things very quickly. And, and you're expected to kind of deal with the trauma very quickly so that it doesn't impact how productive you are because um, we're obsessed with that. and uh, it like like I said earlier, it's this <clears throat> it's this thing that stays with you. It's not a one-time event that just happens to be negative and uh, you you can just kind of move on from that easily. It causes like a, a domino effect of a lot of other horrible things. a lot of other trauma can, be brought back to the surface. Um, in some cases, this can just completely derail people's lives. Yet, it's not seen as something that is as horrible as something that could derail people's lives. We just we just kind of downplay the negative effects of it to such a large degree.
0: Right. I mean, and what what makes my personal like knowledge of people what makes this even more heartbreaking. Is that I know someone at Stetson who has committed rape very recently. Like, pretty, like, this was like within months of me coming to Stetson that I knew, like, that I knew that I knew someone that had committed sexual violence, that had committed rape. And in this particular case, nothing was done about it. I feel like we're going to talk more, hopefully, about this particular case next in next week's episode when we talk about Title IX stuff. But just the fact that I know someone who's gotten away with it, that has no remorse about it. Or at least not any remorse that I can detect. That's that just makes it makes me angry.
1: That is horrible. Um never, never pleasant to find out that you know someone who did something like that. Um no, I mean, I definitely have been friends with guys, some of whom were in Greek organizations, who like late, would just kind of nonchalantly in in, in passing uh, mention things that they've done that I definitely sensed like involved dubious consent. Um, but they, they definitely didn't seem to see that situation that way. And um, sometimes I would talk to them about it and other times it was clearly not going to go anywhere. Uh, and I didn't feel comfortable kind of broaching that subject with them. Um, it's just become I, again, like they, they don't want to see themselves as these, as people who would do this horrible thing. Um, so it, because of that, they're like, uh, I'd rather just not think about what I might have done that might have been very damaging to someone else. Yeah. It's, it's rough. I mean, I, I had a negative experience freshman year that I could not make sense of, uh, whether that was, uh, whether that would have been considered sexual assault or not. And in like spending so much time kind of going back and forth in my head, I just eventually decided to drop it. I was like, I, I don't, I can't make sense of this incident. And um, uh, like, I wasn't ready to kind of under, especially being like very early, like first semester freshman. I was like, I am very intimidated by the process that would follow if I were to kind of pursue this and and really unpack what happened so i'm just going to let it go and um yeah and i think uh i I think the person was visibly i mean because this was a former friend of mine uh very relieved that nothing was pursued and it was only after uh... that happened Yeah, and it was only after that happened that I realized that maybe I should have taken it a little bit more seriously because they were, you know, they just kind of were completely relieved that nothing happened. And I was like, so they were worried, which meant that they were aware that they might have actually known the intention, like what the actual intentions of their actions were in a way that I was not aware of.
0: Right, right. I I am so sorry that happened to you.
1: Oh, no, it's okay. Oh, it's not okay, but... (laughs) it's okay for now. Um, but yes, if anyone's listening who is like unsure of whether they should ever pursue, uh, action at Stetson or beyond Stetson, you should always, you should always consult other people. You should always get a second opinion. Um, you should always talk to a mental health professional at the very least, um, because they're likely to give you pretty sound advice on how to take it further. Um, I don't know, talk to a professor or a trusted adult. Don't just kind of, if you're questioning whether something's sexual assault or not, do not just, uh, don't just kind of let it go because you deserve to have some sort of action pursued. You're, you deserve, and if it's not sexual assault, um, you're not going to, you know, as long as the person, you don't kind of make up lies, which most people do not. Most, like, I'm going to say that again. Most people don't just blatantly make up lies about what happened to them. Um, you're not going to ruin the other person's life, and um, if anything, it will be a learning experience for the other person as well. And you should always pursue that. You should always uh, take it further. Don't uh, just kind of sit in solitude with what happened to you, because you deserve a lot more than that.
0: Right. Exactly. Let's let's now talk about the intersection of rape culture. And power and let's talk about it kind of in the context of what just happened this week with governor andrew cuomo of new york so just to kind of give a recap we're, this isn't like talking about um the stuff that he did with like uh nursing homes that's that's a completely different issue what we're talking about in this case is um three women now um By the time this episode airs, it might be another person. But now, but for right now, it's three women that have come forward accusing Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, unwanted, um, unwanted like uh, sexual contact, or like I don't remember the exact terminologies. But this just is really. In a lot of ways, indicative of how men in positions of power believe that they can do anything that they want, and that they get away with it because for the longest and that they believe that they can get away with it because for the longest time they did. It wasn't until really twenty fifteen, it wasn't until uh, like twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen that people were like, "No, you don't get away." you don't get to get get away with this for any longer like high profile people were just going down like compared to previous decades at a very high rate and this like with the me too movement and everything and so this is really one of one of the better things about the me too movement is that it's made having a position of power and being able to get away with whatever you want, it's made it less secure. It's made... It, it's made it easier for more people to come forward about the harm that was done to them. It allows more people to be ousted from positions of power that they shouldn't have.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and that's why... I, I think the Me Too movement is incredible. I think it it put emphasis on, or it placed emphasis on uh, people with power and holding people with power accountable. Um, in, I mean, obviously in uh, the kind of like the media, but also uh, corporate executives and politicians. Um, and the whole Andrew Cuomo incident just Further proves that this is not a partisan thing. You can be a Democrat, you can be a self-proclaimed liberal or a self-proclaimed uh, progressive, and still essentially live completely hypocritically by by not following whatever you're you're saying. Um, just shows that it's not a partisan issue. That um, we can't just assume that that because someone is a Democrat or or you know, maybe we don't know their political affiliation, but because someone seems like they're, they're kind of an ally towards uh, women's issues more broadly, that they're not gonna do these things in their personal lives. Um, Cause it just time and time again, like people who supposedly care about women's issues uh, are not treating the women in their life with the same respect that they kind of, uh, I don't know, declare to the public.
0: I want to end this episode with something that I saw on Facebook, um, back like a couple weeks ago. Um, so, and this is from, uh, Cristela Sestanga, who was on the podcast, uh, a few weeks ago. Shout out to her again, because she is absolutely amazing at everything. Anyway, so she shares this, uh, photo of a tweet saying, I'm just a girl standing in front of a leftist boy asking him to apply his politics to how he treats the actual women in his life. That really just kind of encapsulates, or just basically says what uh, you had just said, Nia. Anyway, so, Chrysalis expanded further from this, saying, Nothing is real without inward reflection, inner transformation, and conviction to live out by a set of ethics that go beyond subscribed political ideology live consistently, or at least try. No one is immune to the illness that is the socialization we endure during our lives in this society that leans towards all the horrific isms that cause structural and individual corruption.
1: Absolutely. That's that's so wonderfully said. Like That's incredible. Uh, I will have to talk to her and reach out to her because that was really well said. Um, Yes, that's completely true. I mean, when it comes to any, any, your political ideology is, is largely supposed to be a reflection of your moral ideology, and how you believe society should function and how you believe people should be treated. And time and time again, we see people who claim to subscribe to a particular political ideology, yet all of their actions uh, contradict their ideology. And um, some people are aware of that, and some people are not aware of that. And when it comes to it comes to this in particular, um, how you treat what, how you treat the women in your life matters. This goes for both men and other women, um, people who are not men and women. How you treat the women in your life matters. Um, it you can't just claim to be a feminist um, when you do things that completely contradict. What it means to be a feminist or what it means to be a feminist ally um if you are a, if you're struggling with hypocrisy essentially because you're you're saying one thing or preaching one thing and um claiming to subscribe to one thing while doing something different then as you said it's definitely time to look inwards and see uh why that's the case like why you're struggling with uh actually living out your ideology and that's okay like that it's not okay to do certain things but it's everyone struggles with, uh, living completely consistently with their ideology. I mean, we all struggle with being as environmentally conscious as we can, for example. Um, so that's okay. It's just, uh, interest, constant introspection is very important. And I mean, I've definitely been, um, I've definitely contradicted my own actions in a lot of ways. Um, recently I've been like, definitely looking into how I, how I view, um, the women and like the women in my family um, and the things that they've had to endure and uh, kind of reframing some of their actions in my head. Um, And that's because I I realized that maybe I wasn't being completely consistent with what I claimed to subscribe to. So it's never too late to challenge your actions.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Nia, for coming on to the show again. Um, it was great having you. Next week, we're going to be talking about the horrors of the criminal legal system in the context of how women are treated in it. <sighs> gosh, Thank you why, for having why, yeah, gosh, why? Yeah, why do we keep going for like these kind of depressing topics?
1: <laughs> why can't we
0: ever have a fun one?
1: We can. We, we can. can.
0: We should talk about like cats in a couple weeks or something.
1: In a couple weeks we can talk about uh, we can talk about some of the good things that's, that are coming out of the Biden administration
0: yeah kind of like a 90 day thing
1: yeah yeah
0: alrighty see you next week alright that's our show thank you so much to Nia for coming on to the show if you haven't yet, please subscribe to us on whatever platform you get in podcasts. Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at 2024podcast. Our Twitter is at 2024pod. Our Facebook is 2024TheClass of Activism. Our editor and producer is Grace Herzog. Our graphic designer is Cass Bradley. Our social media coordinator is Hunter Asme. Our policy specialists are Katie Craft and Jada Hunter. Our legal analyst is Dee Huey, and the intro and outro song is by Joakim Karud. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.